of the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves enough for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make this happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, Leave us alone. Let us be slaves in Egypt. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. great to be in the house of the Lord. This has been a very meaningful service for me already. We had a great worship time. They sang my favorite song, and the choir numbers were fantastic, but the interesting thing is that our last song just fits in perfectly to, to the message, but we didn't collaborate, so God is up to something here. Honey, I Shrunk My Faith, that's the title of our new series. And I came across that title in an article that Phil Calloway wrote, the writer from Three Hills, many years ago. He had a short article in his, the magazine. I thought, I always want to do a series with that title, so this is it. And uh, we're going to talk about the peril of underestimating God. So we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 14 today. Now, if you could have anything at all, what would it be? Maybe a Rembrandt in every room? How about a new app that removes calories from chocolate cheesecake and cholesterol from the Baconator? A Nobel Peace Prize would look good on your resume. If you could have anything, King Solomon was once given that opportunity and he bypassed some of the obvious choices like wealth or long life or the death of his enemies. Instead, he asked for wisdom. And God granted his request. Solomon was given a spirit of discernment that enabled him to resolve life's most perplexing mysteries. Now, for the rest of us, uh, it's a bit more complicated. We can also gain wisdom, but we kind of have to earn it. And it's mostly by trial and error. In fact, much of our wisdom comes from two sources. The first source of wisdom is the lessons we learn from the mistakes that we ourselves make. I now know that it's not wise to park under a heron rookery. When you're in Stanley Park in Vancouver, you don't leave your van under the trees where the great blue herons are nesting, otherwise it will be anointed from above. <laughs> I know that because of the mistake I made. The second source of wisdom is the lessons we learn from the mistake others make. That's what YouTube is all about. 
I am now wise enough to know that I should not try to ride a skateboard down an iron railing. I was just going to try that. Now I know it's not a good idea. And honestly, personally, I prefer to learn from other people's mistakes. It saves a lot of wear and tear. And that's one of the reasons why we study the Bible. Because this is the ultimate textbook of wisdom. And some of the most important lessons that we learn are from the mistakes that previous generations have made. And the only question is, are we still committing the same blunders? Sometimes the answer is yes. For example, the Bible shows us what happens when people underestimate God. There are some serious consequences. In fact, in my opinion, this is the number one recurring deficiency in our spiritual lives. This is where we really need to wise up. So we're going to spend some time learning from the mistakes that the Hebrews made in their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. If there had been an internet in those days, they would have been all over YouTube. We're in Exodus chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to worship you, to praise you, and to learn how to live lives that please you. Thank you that there is something you have for us today. It doesn't have to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. It can happen today. And we want to be aware of that and we want to take advantage of that. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Exodus chapter 14, but let me just give you a little bit of background. Ever since Paradise Lost, God instituted a ambitious plan to save the world from sin and damnation. And it required the putting together of a team. So he chose Abraham as his first round draft pick. And in time, Abraham's descendants became a nation, the Hebrews. And it would be through them that God's plan of salvation would be revealed to the world. But the Hebrews were now trapped in a dead end. For centuries, they had been slaves in Egypt. They were building monuments to the pharaohs so that in the future, tourists could photograph the ruins with their iPhones on selfie sticks. For the Hebrews, these were dark and desperate times. There didn't seem to be any hope. Where is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? For centuries, they passionately prayed for deliverance until God finally answered their prayer through a man named Moses. And it was Moses who went to Pharaoh and delivered God's message. Let my people go. Well, to the Egyptian ruler, it was outrageous. What God? I am God. No one can challenge me. Obviously, he had a lot to learn. And so Pharaoh was enrolled in seminary where he would study theology and discover just who God was. Pharaoh's curriculum consisted of 10 required courses necessary for graduation. We know these as the plagues that devastated Egypt. And each one displayed the power of the Almighty God who was sovereign over the river and the reptiles that the Egyptians worshipped. 
Unfortunately, Pharaoh flunked the first nine courses. He consistently underestimated God's power. He hardened his heart and refused to submit, which necessitated the tenth plague. That's the one that finally broke his hardened heart and his iron grip. Pharaoh gave in and he let the Hebrews leave Egypt. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. God had answered their most urgent prayer and solved their biggest problem. But God wasn't finished yet. He was about to reveal even more of his glory. So he led the Hebrews right to the shore of the Red Sea, where the ferry boats ran about every half hour. Wait a minute. There's no ferry boats. Moses, what are we doing here? What have you done? Were you holding the map upside down? We can't get across the sea. What are you thinking? Are you going to give us swimming lessons so that in a month or two we can attempt to backstroke across the water? Well, we don't have a month. Time was already running out. Verse 5 says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. After those plagues, the, the land of Egypt was a disaster area. There were huge piles of dead frogs everywhere. Who is going to clean up this mess? We need to get those slaves back. So Pharaoh's concession was only temporary. In verse 9, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. Pharaoh approached the Israelites. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Have you ever noticed that following God doesn't necessarily solve your problems? Even after you turn your life over to God, you can still suffer some crushing disappointments. That's what happened to me. Getting saved seemed like a good idea at the time. But it wasn't long after that I, it began to look like the biggest mistake I'd ever made. What was I thinking? This is not going to work. Nothing is going to change. I might as well go back to the way things were. I, it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They were trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea, or in this case, the Red Sea. And it was getting noisy. There was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and screams of panic were spreading throughout the nation. Now remember, these are the people who had been eyewitnesses to dynamic displays of God's power, the kind that few generations have ever seen. But the effect was only temporary. 
They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. What about us? If God solved our biggest problem, if God answered our most urgent prayer, would we ever doubt him again? They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Sometimes our faith is best before the next crisis. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord is, will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do not be afraid. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible gives us one example of a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a profound sense of awe and reverence. But against that, the Bible is full of examples of people overwhelmed with unhealthy fear. Now, all of them had very good reasons except that in each case, their fear was unnecessary. The reason they were afraid is because they had severely underestimated God. Every time I get afraid, it's because I've forgotten that God is sovereign and that he is in control. So for me, the most effective antidote to unhealthy fear is in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Where there's a question, where Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, unhealthy fear only counts all of the things that are against us. And they add up. There's money problems, there's health issues, there's family conflict, there could be bullies at school and stress at work, there's loneliness, there's forceful addictions. No wonder we have anxiety attacks. Fear adds up all the things that are against us. Faith factors in who is for us. If God is for us, we really don't have to be afraid. It's not necessary. In fact, I think fear, unhealthy fear, is an insult to God. Would you ever insult God? Of course not. Not in so many words. But that's what fear is. It's an insult. It's like telling him, God, <clears throat> you're not able to deal with a problem this big. You can't handle it. Now, we'd never say that. But that's really what fear implies. Fear either questions God's competence or his compassion. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, fine. But how do I know that God is for me? That's easy. The very next verse in Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus Christ is all the proof you ever need that God is for you. But 
If Satan can get you to forget the significance of what happened on the cross, he can put a chokehold on you and make you tap out. He'll defeat you every time. That's why we observe communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is the one who broke the stranglehold of Satan. Through him, we have victory. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We have the victory. Verse 37 of Romans 8 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus is conclusive proof that God is for you. Now, does that mean our problems go away? Not necessarily. It means we deal with them differently. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Fear, I think, is kind of a form of motion sickness. There's so many things going wrong and they're coming from all different directions and I don't know where to turn. We get dizzy and disoriented. Faith is what restores our balance and our sense of equilibrium. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Stand firm. Because when we panic, we either get paralyzed or we start running. It's the Forrest Gump syndrome. Run, Forrest, run, and don't stop. That's what I do when I'm facing a problem. I'm always looking for the nearest exit. In the Peanuts cartoon, Linus says, no problem is so big, you can't run away from it. That used to be my motto. You know, we have a number of friends who were very involved in Christian ministry and who now have just stopped going to church because there was a problem. and They couldn't cope with it. So they looked for the exit and they ran and have never looked back. It's a very popular way of dealing with disappointments. Of course, running isn't always wrong. There is at least one problem that you can solve by running. And that's temptation. Flee youthful lusts. But apart from that, we need to stand firm. Moses told them, stand firm and you will see. You're going to see something. You're going to see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Do you need deliverance? Then stand firm. That's the only way you will see what God's going to do. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. I like that. This week my van broke down, so I phoned my mechanic. And he said, well, I can't fit you until next Wednesday. I wish he would have said, yeah, bring it down today. I'll fix it today. No, it's next Wednesday. That's what I like about God. He's never overbooked Deliverance is available today. And when you run in panic, you don't experience that. Because you, you will miss the best part. Now ladies, you'll appreciate this illustration. It's like the NFL. Fans leave the stadium when their team is hopelessly behind. When defeat is inevitable. They just head for the parking lot and, and drive home. 
But sometimes there's this unbelievable comeback victory and they missed it because they left. I gave up on the Patriots in their last two Super Bowls because it looked like they were going to lose. So I turned the TV off and I missed it. They came back and they won both times. Sure, I got to see it later on SportsCenter, but it's not the same thing. Seeing it live is an unforgettable thrill. Stand firm and you will see. You'll see it live. What do you need to see? Well, don't run. Stand firm. Paul in the New Testament reflects on the consequence of the resurrection victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says the same thing. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. That's very important these days because it's 2017 and we're late in the fourth quarter. And in North America, it kind of looks like the church is facing defeat. It almost seems to be inevitable. We're getting pushed back further and further and Christians are retreating and running. What do we do now? Well, we default to our exit strategy. We find a hiding place and we wait for the rapture. What else is there to look forward to? Is that the only thing God's going to do here in North America? No. I think he's got bigger plans than that. But we have to stand firm. And that's when we'll see. God is getting ready to make his move. We just have to wait for it. Moses said, the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. I love that. Here's a problem. Here's your biggest problem. But you will never, ever have to face this problem again. You'll never see the Egyptians again. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out in triumph, It is finished. It's over. It was decisive. And he rose from the grave. And Paul says, oh, Death, where is your victory? Never again. Sin cannot separate us. Satan has no claim on us. There is no condemnation. So who can be against us? The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. Have you had decisive turning points like that in your life? I still remember some of them in mine. For eight years, in my teen years, I was emotionally tormented by a crippling inferiority complex. It's a form of voluntary mental illness. But God delivered me. And I've never been afflicted by that again. And you know why? It's very simple. Because I'm still inferior. I get reminded of that all the time. Every time I go to the gym, I realize how inferior I am. I'm inferior to everybody who has eyebrows, for example. I am inferior. But so what? It's not important. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what people think. I am inferior. I am unworthy. I am incompetent. I am undeserving. It's a long list. But I am loved by my heavenly Father. That's what's important. So that when I am weak, he is strong. 
Who cares if you're inferior or not? So God delivered me to the extent that I've never been tormented by the sting of inferiority again. Paul also celebrated his unworthiness in the New Testament. He said, I am the least of all the saints. I am the chiefest of sinners. We can have victory over these things that dominate our life for years. The same thing happened to disbelief. I see people struggling with, with disbelief. I can't even remember the last time I had a problem with that. I've been delivered from that. I used to be plagued by guilt, but Jesus set me free from guilt. It's not an issue anymore. You know, God may not change our circumstances, but he can definitely transform our attitude, and he can do it today. Paul says, or Moses said, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. There are some circumstances that God does not remove, but he has a good reason. There are benefits. We learn something that we can't discover in any other way. God didn't take away Paul's thorn in the flesh because it would teach him that God's grace was sufficient, and that was even more important. We all hate James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't like that. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The simple fact is that prolonged problems are the only way we can develop perseverance. That's how we mature. So God is not always going to relieve our suffering because he has a higher purpose. He is developing perseverance so that we may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Because if our faith doesn't expand, it's going to shrink. So every trial is an opportunity for us to recalculate the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. There are some benefits to some of these problems that we face. But there is absolutely no beneficial aspect to unhealthy fear and anxiety. That's why God wants to deliver you from that today. So that it will never dominate you again. Because as verse 14 says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You don't have to fight fear. That's God's responsibility. Your responsibility is to stand firm and to be still. Mind your own business. Be still. There was so much noise at the shore of the Red Sea. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 30, verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Who would look for strength there? But that's exactly what God is showing us. Bill Belichick is acknowledged as perhaps the greatest coach in NFL history because he has this way of taking average players 
and turning them into championship teams. And he has one motto, do your job. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Mind your own business, do your job, be still. Don't try to do what God has promised to do. Just do what God asks you to do. Do your job. Because if you panic, you'll lose sight of God and you won't hear his voice. I saw this vividly illustrated a number of years ago here in Calgary when I was at the Inglewood Bird Sanctuary. I was sitting on a bench and I looked across the pond and there was a family walking along the winding trails. Mom and dad and... Uh, twin boys, young twin boys, who stopped because they were fascinated by the bugs and caterpillars on the leaves. They stopped to investigate, so their parents just continued on and walked around the corner. Well, when the boys looked up, they realized they couldn't see their parents anywhere. And they had an existential moment. They were all alone in the universe. So they panicked. And they started screaming. And they began to run towards their parents as fast as they could. In the wrong direction. Which only made their problem worse. Because the path ahead was empty. It proved that their parents had abandoned them. They weren't anywhere. Now, of course, their father had heard their distress. And he immediately called out, it's okay, we're over here. But they couldn't hear him because of the decibel level of their fear and despair. Boy, they would have saved themselves a lot of grief if only they hadn't been screaming. So their father had a chase after them and it took him quite a while to catch up with them because they were running as fast as they could. How many times have I done that? That's why we need to stand firm. We need to be still. So what happens when we panic? What if we're overwhelmed by fear? Will God give up on us? You know, when those boys screamed, the father didn't say, oh, not again. I'm so tired of all this drama. Let's just keep going. I need some peace and quiet. No, that's not what happened. He ran to his boys as fast as he could and he picked them up, one in each arm, and carried them back to their mother as their crying gradually subsided. He solved their biggest problem that very day. It was in less than a minute. And I'll tell you, when you are overwhelmed by fear, God is not going to abandon you. He is still going to deliver you. If you're his child, your heavenly father will deliver you. He always does. It's just that our anxiety will send us in the wrong direction so that it takes much longer to get us back on course. You can fast track deliverance by standing firm and being still. God will deliver you. We get to decide if it's going to be sooner or later. We get to decide if it's going to be next week or next month or next year or if it's going to be 
today. Jesus told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. In Hebrews 4, 7, it says, God said a certain day, calling it today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In every church service, you have the opportunity to harden your heart. To say, well, that doesn't apply to my case. You can make an excuse. Well, that's easier said than done. Come up with all these things. What that is, is hardening your heart. That delays deliverance. That postpones everything a lot longer than it needs to. Today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart because deliverance is available today. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That's the proper place to aim our fear. The people feared the Lord. They had awe and reverence and they worshipped him because of what God did on that day. And that's the opportunity that we have. We who need the deliverance of the Lord. Father, we thank you that this is a day that you have made and that whatever you have for us to grow us to maturity, to bring us to a place where we have victory over fear and anxiety or anything else that torments us, there is deliverance available for that today as long as we don't harden our hearts. Father, help us to uh, respond to you. Help us to know that you are the God who is available and waiting. You will deliver us because you are our Father. But we pray that uh, we would allow that to happen today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.